And when they tell me, sometimes implicitly, sometimes very explicitly, some some things I don't want to hear, I'm going to be like, okay, like that's that's what you want to say. That's what you want to express to me. And I can take it as a learning and I can agree or disagree with it. And a lot of times I disagree with it and I don't let it affect my self-worth and I don't let it affect how I and my co-founders run the company just because this person of this one company said this one thing. Hey, Han. Hey, Sheree. How's it going? It's going so good. I'm so glad to be back with another episode. How about you? I'm, you know, happy to be here, making it rain as much as I can. You know how I do. No, just kidding. I'm like totally <laughs> kidding. If someone can teach me that, I'd be super excited. Um, but I am excited about doing another episode. Han, can you tell the good people who we're bringing on and a little bit about what we're talking about today? Well, speaking of making it rain, we have a really exciting guest today. Jay-Z Zhang. Jay-Z is someone who I just feel like deserves so much more recognition than maybe what she currently has. And so that is why we love bringing guests like this up on the show for you to learn about. With that, let's hand it over to Jay-Z and bring you up on the show. Kick us off by telling us the moment where things got very real for you. All right, be ready. <laughs> In 2021, at the height of the pandemic, I went to Taiwan to visit a friend who had a medical condition. I did the full two-week hotel quarantine. And the first week out, I went with that friend to a park to go skateboarding. I went too fast, slammed the hindbrake, and landed on my right foot, fracturing both the right and left side bones of the right foot, pretty much dislocating the foot from the leg. So I cannot explain to you the amount of pain to have your foot removed from the rest of your body. <laughs> Jesus was, Christ. Was, yeah, I was uh, I was rolled into the hospital, uh, immediately went into overnight surgery. The surgeon uh, explained that I had to install a German steel plate to hold my foot to my leg um, to connect them together. It was all within, decided within 20 minutes. It was the first major operation in my life, full anesthesia. Uh, did not know if I had insurance or not. I didn't really have a choice. And uh, also, I didn't have any family. Um, and I had that one friend who was just crying or helping me cry. And I was crying on her shoulder. Oh, and oh that was very sobering. Um, it goes even further when I'm rolled out of the surgery a couple hours later in the morning they roll me into what's called a healing room. So typically the nurse will row you and there's, it's kind of like an exit hall at the airport where your family and friends are, are coming to pick you up. So okay. they call Jay-Z, Jay-Z, family and friends for Jay-Z. Of course, there's no one there. And yeah, so I'm, I'm rolled into the healing room uh, with, with, many, many other families um, uh, with myself. And 
And so fast forward, um, I'm on bed rest for a good portion of the three months that I was supposed to be in oh Taiwan. My God. Yeah. And um, I, while I was doing that, I would have my leg up uh, because it, it, it had to be elevated. And I was also working New York hours. So that was 9 oh. p.m. to 5 a.m. local time. So I would have founder calls and pitches over Zoom with my leg up on the side and camera like this looking at me. <laughs> yes, it's, it's That's the commitment level. The I commitment know. Level the behind the high. Scenes, high. The behind the scenes is where it's at. It's, it's the B-roll. Um, and, and I remember that first week I would wake up at, at you know, yeah, 4 a.m. on a Saturday just crying from the pain and, and popping ibuprofen and starting a timer because the recommended dose was every four hours for ibuprofen. So I would pop the four-hour timer till I could pop four more ibuprofen. Um, but yeah, essentially, you know, every day it got real. That's, that's an it got real. And uh, it, it really, that period of time, the three months, made me think about who I was. Uh, who I want to be, where I wanted to be. And uh, three months later in June, the first week that I could walk, I had the go-ahead to not use a cane anymore. Uh, I booked a one-way flight to Los Angeles. And, you know, at this point, I had been living in New York City for, for most of my 20s in my career. And Han was here at the time, so I could, you know, ask her for advice. And noted, too, in LA, I, as a New Yorker, I didn't know how to drive, so <laughs> did not have a car, um, didn't have friends or family or housing or anything like that. But um, but I made my way out here. A few months shortly after that, spoiler alert, uh, the Charm founders approached me about the opportunity I'm at now. So like, there's so much to unpack, but I I want to one just like empathize with what it feels like to get hurt to the point of like am I going to make it or is everything going to be okay? Like in another country, like yeah. it really, really makes you think about like those exact questions, like who am I in the world and what am I doing? Because you feel how big the world is and how small you are in those moments. Like I, I've never had that serious of an injury, but I had a moment in Mumbai when I was traveling all over the world, I got like really sick to the point where like I couldn't wake up. Like I would just like wake up, go to sleep, wake up, go to sleep. And I was like that for a week. And people had gotten so accustomed to me not being in communication because I was always traveling that right. like nobody oh, even no. knew. So no one knew to check on me. And so for five days, I was in this hotel room oh, in my. Mumbai alone. And so I'm imagining you coming out of that yeah. room. You know, you have that one friend in Taiwan yeah. and you're seeing all these families and you're like, a mess, like a hot mess. Yeah. And just when you were talking, I just had chills because I was just thinking about what that feels like. Yeah. The, the immediate thoughts were to your point of what matters. And so when you think about, especially in, in New York City, there's that constant hustle and grind. And, you know, we joke about before starting the podcast about the, the KPIs. And for myself, I'm a big goal setter to the grain, to the month, to the quarter, personal goals, you know, fitness goals, financial goals, career goals. And in all of that moments when you're, you know, leg up on the bed, you're thinking about who are the five people you want to talk to, 
what really matters in the next year. You're thinking about, to give you an example, how do I shower with one leg? Can someone, you know, Amazon me a bucket where I can, you know, elevate my leg or I can shower my hair in Mm. and not thinking about how do I grow my, you know, SaaS conversion from, uh, from 15% to 20%. Mm, right? mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It is, it is those who, who's there for me at this point? Who do I want to talk to? Who will care to listen? Who will care to act? Um, I had friends send me from abroad, like flowers in a fruit basket. And the other friend, the one friend I had there, her mom made me homemade soup and delivered it to the hospital. Mm. So, so there are like these small acts that are like that meant the world, right? Like Mm -hmm. people staying up late um, because we have the time zone difference just to be able to like talk to me, check in on me, hear me out. Uh, And then, and then a lot along the way, you're like, who, not who wasn't there, but who did I maybe like not care for them to reach out or who did I not want to share something so personal and so life affecting? Because to relive this, even as a story is a whole emotional, energetic thing, right? Yeah. And you're like, okay, how many people I'm going to tell this traumatic story to again? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I remember Han too, like when I first got to LA, she was one of the first person I met. And, you know, I showed her my scar, which is like 10 inches deep. Right. And, and it's like, oh, whoa, like, there's a whole German steel plate in there. And I'm joking, like I'm like part bionic. Right? Well, I remember when we met up for, for dinner downtown and, and I, and you were like, yeah, I'm still sort of like getting back on my feet. And I was like, wait, what? And you just sat down and started telling me this whole story. And I was just sitting there thinking, yeah, how on earth did you navigate being in a foreign country? Like, how did you handle all of that like just like all of these questions were running through my mind like the insurance in the hospital in Taiwan and not having any like anyone that was like I think I would have just been like curled up in a ball in the corner crying or something like and here you were <laughs> just like sitting in front of me like yep it's you know I'm good now got this big scar like so what's next and I was like what <laughs> so what's up with you hen <laughs> <laughs> You're like, so here I am. I landed in LA, which um, I would love to go back to that moment. You asked me for some advice. I remember at that point, you were like, hey, I'm thinking of not going back to New York. And I suggested that LA was a good place to have a bit more space to think and feel. Um, It it lacks some of the the energy that pushes you along, I feel that New York does. You kind of have to create your own energy here to push yourself along, which can be both a good and a bad thing, depending on what you want. Right. And uh, I'm curious to know more about why you made that decision and then how that all led to you taking on an, an operating role with, with Charm, because clearly there's like a cascade of, of real life moments here, one after another after this event. So LA for me was always almost a pipe dream. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, the what you see in media growing up, it's it's the the sunsets, the palm trees. It's mm-hmm. it's selling America. I, and I grew up in Canada, and so I was like, oh, America, the land of opportunity. It was like 
LA Hollywood sign and like the, you know, the Ellis Island Statue of Liberty. This is like the impressions <sighs> of America. And so at the time when, when I first moved to New York when I was 17, um, that was, uh, that was not, that was not my original childhood dream. Childhood dream was LA. And mm-hmm. my, you know, Asian immigrant parents were like, no, New York is where opportunity is. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. you, you go with your Asian parents. And, and to, to be fair, the, they were right, as usual. Uh, but, <laughs> but for me, for me, I, I'm very, I'm one who's very affected by environment. And New York really pushed um, a lot of the hustle and a lot of the uh, ambition to out of me to pursue a lot of what we'll go on to talk about. Um, L.A. for me at this moment in time in my career, my life, absolutely the right decision. Kind of like after so long of hustling and grinding and, and anxiety and whatnot in New York City, it was time to be in L.A. and just literally breathe. Mm. literally breathe in New York. Even when I go back now for business meetings, investor meetings, I'm, I'm one breath on top of the other without mm. fully taking a breath out. Mm. And it's, I'm, I'm going from seven meetings a day to the next one in the Uber. I'm writing down notes about the prior meeting. So I don't forget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, um, in LA I'm like, Oh, you know, I can sit on the floor because there's space and and have a Cheeto and watch a 30-minute thing before, you know, the next day prepping for, you know, my, my row of meetings or whatever. I can be fully on and fully off, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think after COVID, um, a lot of realizations, both from a personal experience, but I think also macro and talking to friends and founders, entrepreneurs, there's this, this burnout that no doubt, you know, everyone has been feeling. And LA has been healing for me in this time. Um, that's that's yeah. so beautiful. I wrote down that you said um, that you're affected by environment. Yes. And I wanted to kind of noodle in on that a little bit because you've lived many lives. I have. I kind of want to hear a bit more about those lives through the lens of like your environment. Like and 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 how you navigate it. So you're in. So you're you came from Canada. You came to New York. You built your career in New York. You built many versions of that career in New York in this like hyper ambitious, energetic, do it now or <laughs> never kind of environment. So I think before you sort of go into it, how do you think New York sort of defined your life and career before you went to LA? New York was the nurturer for me. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about nature versus nurture, I had a friend when I moved to LA that asked me, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, when you were a teenager, what was that Jay-Z like? And because my friends now, especially the New York friends, they all know me as, you know, this gung-ho startup person who's trying to do all the things, everything at once. <laughs> Which is, you know, typical, typical New Yorker startup person, probably, and and other cities too. Um, But I very much told him, look, when I was in high school, that was not me. I was very much, if I could describe myself, 
I mean, kind of middle of the road in, in a lot of ways. Like I was not, if you think of high school definitions, um, I was not the prettiest. I was not the most athletic. I was not the smartest in any grade. I was not like student body president. I wasn't the music person. I wasn't the model UN person. I wasn't the most voluntary person, <laughs> you know, like you're here where I'm going with this. I'm, I'm okay in, in most of them, but I was not your Jay-Z as the rapper or whatever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like you are now, certainly. I know, not, not like you sitting around now, but it was truly when I went to college and again, my Asian mom was very much like New York and I was like, okay. And so when I went there, I remember those first year passing by Times Square and watching, uh, you know, the hop on, hop off red big buses, the tourist buses come by. And I was like, those tourists, they must be so jealous of me. <laughs> I'm like, they must be jealous. I'm living here. This is my daily life. Like they're just visiting. <laughs> and it was that kind of like energy that would like sparkle. It was like, you know, the everyone who hates on New York hates on like the filth and like, you know, how like people are rude. And at for the first at least five or six years as in New York City, like it could do no wrong. It'd be like, you know, like rats and like things going on. You're like, that's grimy New York. That's how we do it. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, all that time I was hustling and, you know, sometimes you'll bump into celebs and, and all those things. It was, it was exposure that from Canadian Jay-Z was never never had that type of exposure. It was like much mm. more suburban, not quite small town, but smallish in, in the way that every suburban city or town is. Mm -hmm. And um, and now you're like dabbling with the big fish. Mm. And so from that, every time I get a little taste of quote unquote success or um, or speeding up or matching up to those who in high school or beyond I thought were doing cool things, it would motivate me to go just a little harder, to mm. to work a little bit faster because I I knew inherently, quote unquote, that I wasn't I didn't have super super EQ or IQ or or bronze on my side. I had to just hustle my way through, and I saw people who did that. Mm. I love hearing people talk about New York this way um, because. I think you get to a point in your career where you're like, all right, I've, I've done that part. And I think that's how you end up in LA or just not here. Look, look in New York, just fire trucks going by like this. Yeah, loud. always one. <laughs> so for anyone who thinks, I think it was what I want to call out here is just for anyone listening who thinks that like, you've got to be it already. Like you don't. And whether that's high school or college or like, I'm turning 40 this year and I'm like, Woo. what am I doing? You get to continue to ask that question and continue like to be and to find motivation irrespective of where you think like your skills are, you think your capacity is like you, you get to hustle and be who you want to be. And I just wanted to like shout out you like in the moment as we're talking, because that's just like a powerful testimony, especially when outside looking in, people can load heaps of stereotypes on any of us about what our journeys had to be or who we had to be to get to where we are. And so I think it's just vulnerable and wanted to thank you for that, like in the moment, because sharing that you were not always Jay-Z dropping rhymes <laughs> like you are now, like is a story we don't hear enough, like in tech, especially, and especially for women. 
And so I just wanted to like honor that a little bit as we like continue to chat with you about this journey. So I'm actually going to go back a little bit in time. Please, please. So, well, it actually started right at 17. I moved to New York City by myself. And uh, really soon after I got there, I launched my first startup. Wow. And so that was a mobile food tech app startup. And then my second one, I launched two years after that. And we'll call those in the web 1.0 world. So vintage, right? And (laughs) turns out when you are 19, uh, not knowing much about the world, the hardest are actually the unknown unknowns, especially when it comes to running a startup or a company. And I took advantage of New York City to acquire knowledge. So I worked at various you know, companies, how learning how the big players like Sony and Mashable, um, how they worked in marketing and sales in distribution and strategy while I was in school. And that's a benefit of New York City. Um, all of that said, when I was running my startup, something I knew was missing in skill set of mine was understanding finance and cash mm-hmm. management. So mm-hmm. for those that are not native to it or studied it, it's not innate. And it's not something I studied in. Again, I knew I I had to fill a knowledge gap. So I took upon self-teaching, auditing classes, networking, hustling, recruited my way slash fought, (laughs) uh, fought a position onto Wall Street. And that is how I launched my career. Um, And that was my first pivot in trajectory. So I studied media. It was completely different. You can imagine all of the questions I got um, in college, outside of college, from every recruiter ever. Why are you, why are you doing this? But I knew that. I knew that was something I needed to learn. So fast forward a couple of years when I felt like I got a good grasp on cash management, how, you know, payroll operations, supply chain, let's call it capitalism, how capitalism works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to get back into operating and I joined an incubator in New York City focused on consumer software. That's where I met Han. And I was running finance and operations for various uh, incubated startups. So one of which I led to an exit and another I brought from inception through Series A. So that really hones back my finance operating um, experience. And then comes my next pivot. So after one of the companies we went through Series A, the partners asked me to join their fund to be an investor and to be, you know, officially a VC. Um, In the next 18 months or so, uh, I participated in a couple hundred deals. So that was, you know, structuring, leading, negotiating, sitting on boards, every investment committee. Of course, there's recruiting, there's the networking, mingling, and really thoroughly saw how all the sausage is made, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was my second pivot. And now, you know, fast forward to a year and a half ago, this leads to my most recent pivot. So the Charm Founders, the company I currently run, uh, came to me. Uh, I've known them for a while. We worked together operating at a startup. And after they raised the seed, which we participated in, they said, we've reached an inflection point. Um, the entire team is very technical. We want to scale this company into the VC-backed scalable company it is. And we want you to come run the business. Wow. You know, this is a couple months after I landed in LA. 
by the way, I don't code. <laughs> I'd always been operating in consumer software, investing in consumer software. Um, I have never run a technical developer first company before, but you figure it out. In the past year and a half of being at Charm, we've grown about four to five X. And, you know, the, the tail keeps going. You just keep motivating yourself to the next thing. Um, but to, to bring it back, because that was a longer tail, that was, it was founder to operator to VC, now operator again. I, <laughs> I think when we're telling stories in the rear view, like, it's always like, and then I just, and then I just, and yeah. then I just. <laughs> and then that. But I know. <laughs> and here's another doll. I'm... And here's another doll. <laughs> <laughs> so for any of us who have lived many lives, and the three of us clearly have, I'm, I have a coach now, and he's a philosopher. Love and that. so he's not a, I don't even feel right calling him an executive coach, because like, that's just not even his energy. But he's also decidedly not a life coach because the minute I get emotional, <laughs> he's kind of like, what are we doing here? The reason I bring this up is because he talking a lot about like this idea of like scaffolding intuition or this idea of like, I'm a person that kind of lives my life like peak to peak. Mm. And like, what does that mean versus like actually enjoying the terrain in between? And so as you're talking about these moments and these pivots from operator to founder, like, I'm just curious, what are some of the key takeaways that you got as you navigated the t terrain between these pivots? Um, I wish I had a, a better answer, like from back then, why I did it. But if we're, we're connecting the dots, I think the always, it's always the intrinsic drive for me. Right. It was always the challenge. Mm. And, you know, in this most recent pivot, which is relatively fresh, it was a big decision because should I continue being doing VC and, and I would have probably gone to a larger firm or, you know, what we were talking about, various partner roles at, at various firms and what that comp looked like. And well, I'll tell you, it's not the startup comp that we're talking about. It and it's multitudes of that. Right. It's multitudes of that. Mm -hmm. You can always excel this, you know, pro cons list, whatever. And I did ask a lot of people, um, advisors have that network to think about, especially people who've done both, um, what are the pros and cons, right? And I think at the, ultimately what I've tr been trying to do more and more as I am experienced in, in multiple facets or as I age, I, I try to think about what do I want? Because when I was younger, I would always ask others for validation. Like, what is the right mm. decision? What do you think? And, and you're taught that, right? You're, you're tasking, taught to ask the, the partner or um, the founder or the, uh, the customer or the teacher or your parents. It was like, is this right? Is this the right decision? Now, when I go to advisors and, and these are, you know, very wealthy and very established, successful people, it's like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Tell me where I'm wrong. And I don't need their support, by the way. I would love for their support. But frankly, the best ones are like, I'm looking for your help and advice on blind spots. I don't need you to tell me whether you approve of it or not. Mm -hmm. And the strongest mm -hmm. part, um, which is a consistent process, is if they tell me I don't approve, can you still make the decision you did or you, you are about to? And I'll give you an example is every time I've made those pivots, I wish I were lying about this, every time my parents have gone against it, 
They've, yeah. they've always like gone against like, yeah, every time I'm like, Hey, I'm going to leave this well-established Wall Street bank to go join this incubator startup thing and we'll figure it out. And they're like, what? Or even within Wall Street, when I was like, hey, this manager is, you know, disrespecting me and they're putting me down and, you know, I'm the top performing analyst in, in my class and I've made bank, whatever. They'd always be like, put your head down. Like you haven't been there long mm. enough. You, mm. you don't know what's right from wrong. And, um, or when I'm like, Hey, I think I'm going to go do this VC thing, or I'm going to go back into being an operator. Right. That's like, they're just like, Oh, are you sure? Like you, you weren't that there for that long. Like this seems really risky, but every time I'm like, okay, I hear you and I don't agree with you. And, mm -hmm. and if I'm wrong, which I frequently am, that's okay. Cause I, I take in the failures it doesn't mm -hmm. really affect them in any way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, I never have to have them take any, you know, of the punishments of my failures. Uh, but that is something that is, that's taken many, many, many years to hone. Hmm. I'm not seeking for validation. Even when, even now, you know, going into as an operator pitching to, um, to VCs, right? Back into operator. And I have the advantage that I know what, you know, VC code means, right? Mm -hmm. Or what they think or how the mm -hmm. hierarchy works and how mm -hmm. the sausage is made. And when they tell me sometimes implicitly, sometimes very explicitly, some, some things I don't want to hear, I'm going to be like, okay, like that's what you want to say. That's what you want to express to me. And I can take it as a learning um, and I can agree or disagree with it. And mm -hmm. a lot of the times I disagree with it. I disagree with it. I, I don't agree with it. And I don't let it affect my self-worth and I don't let it affect how I and my co-founders run the company just because this person of this one company said this one thing. Bars. Just bars. Just dropping bars. Just like, my turn to say, can we just pause here and like take in what you just said? I want to go back and like underscore, like highlight, underline the part where you're like, I hear you and I disagree with you. I think that is something that like, I know I need to hear that on the regular, but I'm sure the listeners of this podcast need to hear that on the regular too. And I think it is also so profound to hear it coming from specifically you, Jay-Z, talking about this too, and your whole life story and all of the ways in which you were raised that that factor into this. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we, we talk about things like conviction. You know, you talked about being on both sides. You know, I'm in venture now. Like, I think the wildest thing to me was seeing how, like, some of it is, like, just opinions. Like, you, I'm not saying venture people aren't smart. Like, they are. And I work with right. a bunch of super smart people. But- I think the biggest aha moment for me, especially coming from the other side, being like a woman founder, a black woman founder, a founder who didn't get an MBA or like any of the things. I remember when I became a venture backed founder, in some ways, I feel like it was the death of me as an entrepreneur. I was so like, couldn't believe I actually finally got there. So everything mm -hmm. everyone said, I took on. Like I think about some critical decisions I made when the pandemic hit, like I was running a travel company in Africa and Ham remembers this. I was trying to decide, do I stay in New York mm -hmm. because I'm closer to investors and I think when this thing ends, I'm going to have to raise money or do I go to Ghana where the cost of living is cheaper, the cost of talent is cheaper. Wow. Yeah. 
all of my investors said, if you go to Ghana, you're not going to be able to raise money. You know what ended up happening? I got locked into a super expensive apartment in New York City. I had all my expensive U.S. employees and my cash just went down because COVID just kept going on and on and on and on. I couldn't really pivot to like domestic travel or like anything because I wasn't on the ground. The people that worked for me in these countries, they all had to find other jobs. They didn't have an in-person leader to motivate them. And it wasn't the only reason I had to shut my company down. But I think about that decision all of the time. I think about the fact that I didn't listen to myself. Like I literally was like, these people know better. Mm. And the reality is they didn't. That's why they invested in me. If they knew better, they would have built this company a long time ago. But like sometimes it can be so easy to like think you don't know better. It doesn't mean you don't take advice because you should. I think my question to you is like, what do you think it was in you? And what can maybe our listeners cultivate within themselves to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. To be able to say, like, I hear you, but, like, respectfully, I disagree. So thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, it is unfortunately way too common that that line of thinking and that experience, not, you know, sure, not your exact experience, hopefully, but, um, but, but the line of thinking. And when that comes to be the case, whether I tell myself or I advise you know, various entrepreneurs and especially female founders is they'll come to me and they say, Jay-Z, you know, here's what the VCs are telling me. And, you know, whether it's maybe they, they have a product and they're like, do I keep growing, you know, with marketing organic or, or do I have to start a pay payroll now? And say it's an example like that. And I'm like, what do you think? Tell me, what do you think? And they're like, well, you know, like, you know, they, I, I really want to keep growing. Um, but, you know, the VCs are telling me I, I won't be able to raise if I don't start the paywall now. And um, I, you know, I, 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 this is my first time as a founder. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and what I, the advice I say is, hey, um, let's, let's call them Han. Hey, Han. I, a year from now, remember why you're building this company, this business, right? Yes, you want to raise capital. But you want to build this out to be bigger than that. Remember why you started this. You want to build mm -hmm. this to be a fulfilling business, 5, 10, 15 years. There's a larger mission and purpose, and you want to empower a lot of people with the product that you've started today. And when you think about that longer-term plan, think about also in a year or two years or three years from now, should that decision not work out, you listen to the VCs, and everything tanks. What do you regret more? Do you regret listening to their advice or do you regret not listening to yourself? And I think, Sheree, you answer that. I don't know how long it goes, but you're, you're going to be thinking about it and you keep thinking about it. And for the next maybe five, 10 years or your next startup or next three startups, you're going to keep thinking about, I didn't, I didn't listen to myself that one time and look what happened. And that kind of regret is way more haunting than upsetting a couple of VCs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I've upset a lot of people in my time. I'm definitely <laughs> a boat rocker, um, as if you call it. And I've for that, I've been beaten down a lot. I think that's also something that doesn't go said enough, you know, the, the failures or mishappenings of people. But to answer your Sheree, your second part of your question, like what makes me have conviction in myself? 
what gets me going. Why do I still have these insights, even though I've been beaten down so much? It's just like you fall, you get up. You fall, you get up, and you keep pushing, and you succeed. And you know, when I have my worst falls, I mean, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but it way back, <laughs> full circle. But I'm seriously like I'm I'm honored, uh, and I'm professionally too. When when I've made like a big swing, and I completely miss, and I get beaten the head for it, you look around and you're like, there's a lot of people out there rooting for me. A lot of people trying to help me get back. A lot of people reach out and be like, hey, that was rough. Like, you did it. Congratulations. Reach out anytime. Mm -hmm. And these people are like, to me, like, they're my role models. These are like pretty fancy, you know, successful, entrepreneurial, empowering, ethical people who I want to grow up to be someday. And their opinion and, and the way they say things, they have no business talking to me, texting to me, spending any time with me. Their mm -hmm. time's worth a lot, frankly. But the, the way that they've supported me in those hard hits because I took those risks, that also gets me going, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I wasn't a complete failure. I'm not worth nothing. Look at these big deal people who are being like, hey, don't let yourself down. You got this. Mm. Wow. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And to, listening to you right now, to take it back to something you said a few minutes ago, when you were starting your very first company, when you were, I think you said you were 19, you said the hardest thing is the unknown unknowns and you use New right. York as your sounding board and your environment to educate you. It's like in those moments when you say, uh, you know, respectfully, I'm going to disagree. It's often when we have those unknown unknowns. And like you say, the only way we're ever going to learn and find out and be able to trust ourselves long term is if we just go ahead and do it. Yeah. And I yeah. think that is the true takeaway of of this episode of Your Got Real Moment. <laughs> Literally, of, go, of what go happens. ahead and do it. <laughs> just do it. Um, okay. One, like, I, I feel like I'm going to say thank you. So Sam edit out the 12,000 thank yous that I'm saying. <laughs> but I think undergirding this whole experience has been an incredible amount of work beyond yourself. Mm. And to make this world that you've navigated like a badass, <laughs> like more open and accepting of other people that don't walk, talk, look, whatever, like, the standard success stories and you've made paved the way for other people to have success stories like yours. And so I wanted to invite you in to our record scratch moment today. And that is the Supreme court's decision to overturn affirmative action in higher education. And it is something that I think we'll be talking about for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I'm just curious for you, um, especially as an Asian woman, and I think Han, um, what was the quote that Jay-Z shared? This was an article that came out about Jay-Z fairly recently in, in Bloomberg uh, titled Why Silicon Valley's Many Asian Americans Still Feel Like a Minority. You say uh, you were talking with a tech industry group focused on diversity and inclusion and was shocked to learn that the group didn't consider Asians underrepresented. And your quote is, I was like, oh, I didn't know I was not considered a minority. <laughs> I certainly feel like it in every other way. And certainly reading that was a meta record scratch for me. And so to unpack this a little bit, we would love to hear if you have any thoughts or if you want to lead us in a conversation about this 
it's tough um, because both for affirmative action itself and for the larger kind of Asians and DEI scope um, and, and initial reaction with, you know, the overturn of affirmative action is a lot of sadness. I'm personally one of a big life missions of mine is really to empower women and those underrepresented. And that's a, that's a lifelong goal that I want to pursue in a meaningful way. And when I hear, um, when I hear something like this happen, it does as an individual, it, it, it makes me feel relatively helpless. Mm. You know, it's like, what can I do? What have I done? Have I done anything that will amount to anything? Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that. And then when you think about like, you're looking at the threads and the comments and, and then you go into like the racial stuff. Yep. It's tricky because it's, it's related, but almost like different topic at large that mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. the education decision and choices and socioeconomic gap. Um, and you know, the, the media sensationalizes just to bundle it together. Like mm -hmm. it's not that easy to decipher. And, and to bring it back to the quote and the story that Han had, you know, when I read it, the comments for me personally, I'm like, oh, I know, you know, friends who've spoken out personally to me and in private, how um, they've benefited from affirmative action. And they also get kind of that, you know, a little bit of a patronizing treatment once they're in the elite colleges, because people, mm -hmm. you know, they got an easy quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they have that double-edged sword. And then I see the comments and a lot of them are just like, well, obviously now these elite colleges will just have more, you know, Caucasian and Asian kids. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how true that is <laughs> statistically. You know, I don't know if that is what will happen. Can you say that is for every college ever? Like that's quite generalizing. And I think that also goes to the speak to the the article and the person I talked to, which represented a large uh, organization that was tallying DEI stuff and Asians were not considered because at their particular Silicon Valley demographics, Asians were the majority as Asians and Caucasians. Mm -hmm. And you also have a lot of the stuff out there where like Asians are, quote unquote, the model minority, right? Mm -hmm. And so they don't have this like with the exception maybe recently come to light of the Asian hate and stuff like that, when you come to like academia or when you come to other pieces of like tech or professional development, like Asians are like, okay, you know, like no one's like worrying about them being below the poverty line per se. Yeah. So I'm conflicted because uh, I certainly know or I imagine that personally I certainly have privileges um, much more than several other races. Um, at the same time, I've also been batted down many, many times explicitly for being an Asian, for being a woman, which was more often than not in any room I step into. There's like, you can't really cry for help because like there's, mm. you know, other victims and races who statistically have it way worse than you. And so you just shut up. And you, you try to keep going and you try to do better and help others uh, until, you know, then you have Asian hate and, and that becomes then they're like, oh, actually, Asians need help. Uh, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, actually, um, this is happening here, yeah, too. And we maybe we should also yeah. be concerned. <laughs> I think um, one of the saddest part of 
this decision to me has been, I've felt like we've lost the plot, right? So like affirmative action wasn't designed for right now exactly how everything is. Affirmative action was designed to undo centuries of racism and oppression mm -hmm. institution that like still impacts today, right? And I think a lot of the conversation around affirmative action comes from a place where America has arrived. And I think even in the DEI community, and I'll just say it, like we get into these like oppression Olympics that are just unnecessary. Now there are, like to your point, there's certain certain types of systemic racism that does impact certain groups disproportionately, but that doesn't mean that someone from another group should not also be able to have a space to talk about the issues that are affecting them. Because just like in life, you know, you stump your toe, you might be down for a week. I stump mine and I don't feel anything. And it, and it, and, and neither of us is wrong in our experience. And so it's just felt to me like this entire discourse has just been quite frankly, like black and Asian people like having beef. And I'm like, Hey, Hey y'all, <laughs> not we're on the same side, not <laughs> wrong thing, yeah. you know? And so it's been, it's just been a challenge because I think what it does is also like misses a moment of like, true allyship for yeah. one another mm -hmm. and like yeah. misses a moment for us to learn about each other's experiences and also misses like other boogeymen that don't have anything to do with affirmative action. Like, yeah. so if we look at some of these elite schools who are now like, you know, passing over, you know, East Asian students applying, yeah. like, it might not be because they're choosing the black person first. It might be because the U.S. has really crazy ideas about China right now. And that's a whole other thing yeah. that people are thinking about. So you're thinking it's because low income black person got in and like, again, missing the plot. Yeah. Like America has traditionally behaved poorly and they will find every reason to make it about everything but America. And America is also the land of opportunity. Like two or more things can be true. And I think that's what's been a challenge about this discourse and just super frustrating because it's like, we're missing the plot. Like you can say that it was not okay for this to happen to me when I had the grades and I had this, I had, and I'm still a minority. And you can acknowledge that like, this also needs to be in place because for centuries, this country has behaved like gruesomely against other people trying to get ahead. And so it's just, I think for me, that's been the hardest part of this is like one that this has happened continues to signal that like we're not ready to reckon with ourselves as a country in meaningful ways. But the second is that sets of people who are still trying to navigate this country in their own ways are seeing each other as foes when like we shouldn't. And, mm -hmm. and, and we're also because everything is so charged, there's few and far between spaces where we're actually able to like see one another in the fullness of who we are in this great American experiment. And I think that part is really sad because more and more of us are, are fighting, are, are like, are making our way, but still not seeing each other when we get there. And I think that's, that's just unfortunate. Like, I think it really, it's really bothered me. And I think like on both just listening to that DEI conversation, when I, when I saw your quote, I was just like, like that also sucks. 
Like that also that because because there's also a question of like, how do I express my own identity? Mm. How much tamping down have I had to do? And I hate that. Like all, all of these things that any of us is doing to negotiate space as women, as like we should really be like unpacking that versus like you got this leg up over me who should like actually no, like person who's like family has been donating forever is actually who we need to have this energy for. But like we're not even talking about that. Like we're we're over here fighting over this little piece. And, and so I don't know. It just I definitely like rage tweeted like the whole next day. And I was like, I'm gonna get fired from my job. Like I was just like <laughs> But I was so angry. Like I was so angry about like just where the discussion goes. And I think that helplessness is something like I definitely identify with. It's like in my life I'm doing all these things and even in my community, but like then something like Roe or something like this happens and you're just like, and now for what, you know? Yeah. 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 But I appreciate you being so candid, even about the tension, like in navigating it. Cause I think those are the conversations that we actually need to be having. Same plus one to everything being said here. And I really appreciate <laughs> you, you bringing up the tension too, because as the most privileged person in this conversation, that was one of the first places my brain went is I was like, oh God, this is a horrible thing. Obviously let's put that there and have space for that. But also wait a minute. Now this means we have more people fighting for pieces of the pie, and this is going to create more tensions between people. And instead of working together and helping each other out and being allies. This is actually, this could become systemically divisive, which mm -hmm. wouldn't be mm -hmm. the first time in the history of this country, this experiment mm -hmm. we call America, which I will point out, mm -hmm. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm Canadian, uh, is this wouldn't be the first time that this has happened where people have been pitted against each other and mm -hmm. who ends up benefiting from that in the end, right? Really? Is is this yeah. really happening all over again in 2023? And to take it to um, a related note, but since we're on a podcast and I like being meta, I, I, I tapped on this article the other day on, on, on Twitter. It was from Pew Research Center, right? You know, pretty reputable topic. And the title is, I just pulled it up here, Black US Podcast Listen choose different distinct topics have different reasons for listening than other groups and i'm like oh that sounds interesting i have a podcast i'm curious about this i start reading the article right get to the second paragraph here the survey's sample size was not large enough to report results for asian podcast listeners separately and i was just like what 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 just happened here it's exactly <sighs> what you're talking about in your quote which is like, oh, shit, we forgot about you. And like, this is the stuff that like, this is where the reckoning happens now. And like, yeah, yeah, this is the next thing that we've got to figure out as as a team and as a group. And I'm just so grateful that we can come here together and have these types of conversations, because there is a tension, yeah. there is a distinct tension around this. And it's about like, where we are today as a country and where we were previously and how do these things fit together in a way that can actually take us forward. That's crazy. I'm thinking about this Pew thing, but that also doesn't surprise me because I'm always like, Pew has never called me once. So I never know who these polling people call. Like, who are they calling? Where are you getting your who research? Are they actually calling? In my 39 years, they've Not never reputable. called me. No, 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 no. But thank you for joining us in today's Record Scratch. We always, it could get deep, it could get crazy, it could go any which way. And I know like 
this thing is happening and it's going to be something folks are discussing for a long time. And so I appreciate you being willing to just like have like the raw moment and sort of unpack it together and just like chat about it um, a little bit. Like I'm the political junkie of of Han and I. So I always appreciate when she lets me go down these rabbit holes. If you don't mind me sharing one last piece of advice. Yes, please. Take it home. Her question specifically was, what advice would you give a younger self? And and I thought a lot about this, um, especially when it comes to females. I know you you all have a large female-based listenership. Um, it's two parts. The, the first part is make the ask. I think women don't do this enough because they're worried of contention. They're worried of failure. The ask can be anything. I'd like a promotion. Can we discuss what that looks like? I'm applying for this program. Will you write my recommendation letter? You know, I'm interested in this job. Can we chat? Make the ask. Now, there's a part two that is very, very important to make the ask. The part two is don't give them a reason to say no. So when you make the ask, you end the ask. You don't say, if you don't have time, no worries. If you can't do that, no worries. It's okay. Like, I know you're busy, you know, no worries. You don't do that. You just put the ask, you end it with the question mark and you let them say yes or let them say no. That's it. We should ban no worries. We should ban it. We just ban no worries as a response. I love that. We need an episode on banning no worries. <laughs> Thank you both so much for just letting me ramble on. <laughs> it was great. And thank you so much, Jay-Z. It was such a pleasure having you on the show today. And I am still just like, have shivers down my spine from some of the stories and some of the things you shared. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I think one of my favorite things about doing this show with you, Han, is that like we're very similar but we also have like wildly different backgrounds and perspectives. And I think this season having guests and like being able to like do that, like at another level, like continues to be like one of my favorite things about doing this show. I'm so happy we had Jay-Z on the show today. And I'm so, so thankful that she was just willing to like have the chat. And so if you're looking to just like keep up with her and see what she's doing, you can find her on Twitter at JZ Musings. You can also uh, check out her website, which is jzmusings.com. And you can, of course, look up Charm and see what the company's doing as well. But she's just an awesome human and, and just someone you should uh, want to continue to know. And I think you got like a dose of that today. Mm-hmm.